How are y'all doing? All right, I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for asking. I am glad that y'all are here. This is a great week to be here. We are closing out this series called You Lost Me at Leviticus. And my heart is really that in this series, we've been able to kind of see who God is uh, in, a, in a even more direct maybe than we're, we're used to when we just read maybe the, the New Testament, don't dive in. When I was growing up, I had a, a, um, an experience that kind of relates to how many of us relate to God. I was in going into eighth grade, actually I was going out of eighth grade into uh, my freshman year of high school. And I took the Norsworthy basketball camp in Garland, which was the high school uh, coach. And so it's kind of what he would use to kind of scout who's going to be on the team, the, the freshman coming in. And so I went to this basketball camp. And I'm there with my friend Patrick, we called him Pat, and we're scouting out all of the guys at this camp, and I look around, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do all right at this camp, and this sets me up for a pretty good freshman year. And then my, my friend Pat taps me on the back, and he points at this kid coming in, and he says, that's Dave. He says, I've met Dave before. He said, you're not going to like Dave. Dave is arrogant. Dave thinks he's the best. He goes... Dave isn't the best. And, and he, he kind of set me up, hey, we got to watch this kid, Dave. And in the, my, my eighth grade brain, I'm like, all right, there's my rival. There's the guy I've got I've to watch out for. And so we had a camp and I didn't really get to know Dave. I just competed hard. I would, you know, go make sure that I always tried to get the best if I could. And then a funny thing happened on the uh, first day of my freshman year in high school. I go to basketball and I'm trying out for the team and who's right there but... Dave. And in fact, over the next uh, few years, Dave becomes one of my best friends. And I actually end up going to college and uh, Dave pledges the same Christian fraternity. I go on spiritual retreats. I even saw Dave this year. In fact, Dave became one of my best friends. What's fascinating about this whole thing is that the more I spent time with Dave, I began to realize, you know what? Dave's confident, but I'm kind of arrogant. It's, it's me that kind of had that arrogant mindset. And I, I kind of approached it from, I thought I knew everything about Dave because somebody had told me about Dave. But once I got to know Dave, man, Dave's a pretty nice guy. He's a pretty neat guy. I like him a lot. And what's interesting is that I think that's how most people treat God when it comes to the Bible. You see, often we might hear about God. Maybe you have one or two verses that you encounter and you think you know about God. You think you know God, but really you know about God. You've heard some things, you hear some uh, verses, you come to church once a week and you've been doing it a while. So we, in our mind, get this idea, hey, I know all about God. But the truth is that there are some people that we spend a lot of time around and we discover what we had heard about him is not who he is. And, and so part of this series has been trying to show you that there's a lot of us who may have grown up in church. Maybe you've even read some parts of the Bible, but you don't seek God the way that you would seek a relationship. You don't know God the way that God wants to know you. The way that you, 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 you know somebody that you really want to love, that you want to encounter. To say it another way, I want you to think about a marriage. Think about if you wanted a great marriage. Think about if I told you I have a great marriage. 
I have a great marriage, and, and from everything I've heard about my wife, she's a good person. You know, in fact, once a week, I have this guy tell me how great my wife is. And so I'm pretty sure she's a great person. How many of y'all would say, you know what, Joel? I'm not sure you have a great marriage. You might have a great wife, I don't know. But if, if you're getting your information from what a guy's telling you once a week about her, you might want to look into some, some issues that, there's some potential issues here. And so when I started this series, I really thought this was going to kind of be a sword for us, that if you are a, a, a follower of Christ, it would be something that you could kind of look into the Old Testament, and if somebody attacked your faith or said something out of context, you'd be able to say, you know what, that's not who God is, and you'd be able to use it kind of to show them this is who God is. What I've discovered in the course of this series is that this is more of a shield than a sword, that there are some people who may come to church, may claim to follow Christ, may claim to wear his name, to bear his name, but they're not seeking Jesus. They're not seeking God. There are some of us in this very room that we know about God, but we can't honestly say every single day we're seeking God, we're in his word, we're trying to know all we can about God. We're trying to know who he is. We're spending time in prayer. We're, we're, we're seeking to, to have a relationship. And some of us in this very room, if we were to just examine our relationship with God, we'd really realize it's not a relationship. We hear about God once a week from a guy who seems to really like him. And we may even go to a group every once in a while or talk to people and say, this is what I've heard about God. But our experience isn't being drawn from our experience. So really my heart with this series is that we've looked at some tough stuff in the Old Testament and I've tried to draw a thread on the heart of God and I've made this main comment that if you understand the laws of God, you understand the heart of God. And so the first week we talked about the laws of God. We talked about how in, in the Old Testament they would find a principle of the law and, or, or an example of the law and they would draw out the principle. And it's the exact opposite of how we do uh, how the legal system works now. In our context here, everything's about the letter of the law. And so some of us read the Old Testament and we think that doesn't make any sense. But I showed on the first week, I showed whenever we talk about, let's say, oxen, in the, if there's a law about oxen, it's never about oxen in the law. It's always in the Old Testament. It's always about people, but there's an example that we can apply. And then the second and the fourth weeks, we talked about there are these sacrifices and there are these animal sacrifices and then there are these uh, festivals that God commands. And so we kind of made the case that these aren't really uh, just about sacrifices or these aren't just about this, that it's really about Jesus, that the Old Testament is about Jesus. And, and the case I've been trying to make is that you'll never fully understand the Old Testament unless you understand the New Testament. But you'll never understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament, that they, they go together. But yet, as Christ followers, some of us just discard this. Last week, or two weeks, or a few weeks ago, I talked about one of the hardest commands I think that we've had in the Bible, and that is the command to destroy an entire people, the Amalekites. Some of us hear that and think, I mean, you know what? I just don't like a God who would tell us to destroy an entire people. But we looked at that verse and we realized that the heart of that verse is a righteous verse. But some of us here probably missed that Sunday and you probably still would hear that and you would think, you know what? I just don't know if I fully embrace this God. I don't know if I fully embrace this Old Testament in the heart of God. Last week we talked about tattoos. 
If you missed last week, you're probably like, man, why does he have a tattoo? But we kind of said this is really about the principle of the thing and that we even showed how just because it says in one verse that do not mark your bodies with tattoos, we showed in other Old Testament verses that God says, hey, it's okay if you have marked bodies. We even showed two verses. You might want to go back if you missed it where God has a tattoo and it says God has marked his body and what he wrote on his body is very, very powerful. But you got to go, go back and watch the, the, the video if you missed it. All that to say this, for, for, for some of us in here, this is informative or whatever, but it's not as useful as I would like it to be. The real heart of where this series is about, it's about those of us that are seeking God every day, that actually get up and read our Bibles and actually have decided, you know what, I want to know the creator of the universe, and if he has given me a word, if he has written it in history and it's been recorded, I want to know who he is. I want to know his heart. So I've tried to choose some of the hardest verses I have that I could find so that if you get stuck and you think, you know what, that seems to be difficult. I don't understand that verse. Why would God say that? That seems to go against everything I know about God. I've tried to pick verses that we can dive into and give you confidence to say, you know what, I want to read even the hard stuff because I want to know the heart of God. And so today I'm closing the series with what I believe is the most difficult verse in the Bible, if taken out of context. In fact, this is a verse that I know there have been some people who have walked away and abandoned the faith because of this verse. There are some people who have heard this verse and said, I will never follow Jesus or follow any God that would say that in their holy book. But before we get to this, I want to just have you check your heart. Because this is going to happen more than just, this, just today. You're going to encounter a verse or a person who claims to know about the Bible. And they're going to say a comment that's going to go against what you kind of thought. And you're going to have a choice. How do I respond to this? You know, I, I know it's hard to believe, but every once in a while, I have four kids. And every once in a while, they don't get along. I know. It it's, it's, doesn't seem possible. A few months ago, one of my kids got upset, started fighting with his siblings, and he made the comment when I punished him. I actually, he, he did something that caused a punishment. So I said, you're grounded. Get off screens, which if you know, that's the worst thing you can do to a child these days. And so he makes the comment on his way out, I hate this family and this family hates me. And he screams and he goes off to his room and he's yelling and he's, you know, he's just, and I, and I go to calm him, calm him down and I don't really care if he says he hates me. I, I know he doesn't hate me, okay? I'm, 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 an, adult, I'm an adult. I know this. He, I, we've all said that, okay? But I did want to address, but you said I hate you. You said everybody hates you. And I just, I ask him, what have I done that would make you think I hate you? well, you grounded me. And I said, and this is the parent part. I said, well, technically I didn't ground you. You grounded yourself by your behavior. Let's not get caught there, but you know, let's get our language right. You, you grounded yourself. But what have I done this week that has showed you I don't love you? I said, I've provided for you a house and done the, the basic stuff, but I also took you out for ice cream. I said, I'll let you stay up late. Man, we wrestled around and had a great day. Man, we even went out to eat and let you choose the restaurant. What have I done? 
And, you know, he comes around and he's like, okay, you don't hate me. And I said, that's right. You know my heart. You know me. So when you read this verse, it's going to tell a lot about your faith. Because you're going to read this verse and you're going to say something about God. You're either going to say, now I need to not know God's heart, so I need to know what this verse is really saying. Or you're going to say, that's why. That's why I don't really trust in God. That's why Jesus had to come and change who God really was. Because the Old Testament God, you're going to say all these presumptions, but I just want to put it out there. That your reaction is going to tell you as much about what you want out of your relationship with God as what God is actually saying to us. So I'm going to show the verse, and I'm not going to give you any context because that's the most fun way to do this, okay? This is Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 28 and 29. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to let it sink in a little bit. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, and though they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. There's a bunch of people who have made comments on this verse, as you might be able to imagine. This is one. This is from a blogger who uh, wrote a book. I don't recommend the book. It's not very biblical, but it's called A Year of Biblical Womanhood by Rachel Held Evans. And she makes some comments about this that kind of sum up what a lot of people have accused this. She said, if you were not already engaged when the rape occurred, you and your rapist were required to marry each other without the possibility of divorce. Therefore, you would be victimized over and over and over again. In fact, when we read this verse, how many of you just, your reaction, if you're honest, would say, I don't wish that was in there. I wish we could have not put that in there. Right? Go ahead. Raise your hand. I want to know. How many of you would feel uncomfortable with this? The rest of you, I hope you're just being shy. Now, I want this to resonate a little bit because with what you know about God, with your experience with God, I want you to think about how this sits with you. The creator of the universe who according to the overall meta story, wants to just be with you. He loves you so much, he creates this world just to be with you. And when we screw it up and we be introduced sin into the world, he says, you know what I want to do? I still want to have a relationship with you. I want to take care of sin and death. I want to get rid of it. And so he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth. And next week we're going to celebrate Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, paying a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be righteous before God. And then he's resurrected. And then he ascends into heaven so that someday where, where he is, we will be also. And the caveat is, but if you were raped, you are going to forever be victimized over and over again by your victimizer. What we know about God, does this seem to sit? So what I want us to do is figure out what the heck is going on here. But in it, I, 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 the reason I chose this is I want, as we go through this, and by the end of this, you're going to see this verse in a new light. You're going to see the heart of God in a new light. You're, in fact, some of you are going to, to actually appreciate this verse, if you can imagine. But as your heart and as you go on this twist and this roller coaster, I want you to examine yourself as well and understand, how am I approaching God? Is it as I'm trying to be unified and trust the best? Or 
Am I just waiting for him to screw up because I'm looking for an excuse of why I won't have to dive in, why I can just kind of write off the Old Testament, why I can say, you know what, that's why I don't read all the Bible. You can't trust it all. So let's jump in. First thing, anytime you read the Bible, what you've got to understand is that uh, not just the Bible, every single book needs to be read with a context, okay? Context, a historical context, if you're writing, reading a historical book, this is a historical book. In fact, this command that, that we're reading was written about, oh, it was written over 3,000 years ago. It was written in a, to a different type of people in a different place, and there were different things they valued. And there were some things in the, the Bible that you have to understand. So if you're new to the faith, I want to give you three pieces of context that are going to at least help you understand the, the foundation of where we're going. The first thing is what God thinks about marriage or what the Bible says about marriage, the overall story. What the Bible says about virginity, what God thinks about virginity, and what God thinks about adultery. Those three things are important to this context. What does God think about virginity? We live in a culture where virginity is not prized the way it once was. But understand that in the culture that this is being written to, virginity is a symbol that, 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 that there is no parallel to. It is a symbol of purity. In fact, some of the versions will say chaste, and, it, and it's more than just sexual purity. It's actually talking about chastity, about uh, having a, a moral purity that is in your mind, it's in your heart, it, it's physically in your body. It's someone who will withhold their desires in order to pursue God. And the ultimate example of this in the Bible is a, is a virgin woman, a woman who has made the decision and understands she has, has the freedom to decide, but she said, you know what? I'm going to keep myself sexually pure because I'm going to pursue God and obey his commands at the expense of, of me following my lust and desires. It's her willingly saying, I'm not going to choose short-term pleasure over long-term holiness. And it's going to be rewarded when she's able to get married and she's going to, to be able to give to her husband a gift that is unique. She's going to be able to give all of herself to him. She's going to be able to, to give every single, a gift that no one else has experienced. She able, she's able to give this. And likewise, the man could do to the woman. But the picture in the Bible is that a young virgin girl is a precious and prized thing. And one of the things you're going to see is that God defends this and God prizes this. Now, we live in a context where every movie we say devalues this, where most of us have devalued this, but understand God values this. Now, marriage is another thing that's important. Again, we see marriage, you always hear the news stories, marriage is under attack, but you've got to understand the, the perspective of every single biblical writer, that the most holy relationship that you have with one other person is a marriage. And the reason for that is that marriage is a picture of how God loves you. You may have never thought this, but as you're standing or as you, if you're at a, a, at a wedding ceremony, and you're, you're seeing two people give vows. Have you ever noticed who they give the vows to? They don't give the vows to one another. They say the vows to a minister. Do you promise to, blah, 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 you know, you know the whole thing. And they say, I do, but they don't say it to one another. Sometimes they look at each other, but they're referring, they're talking to the minister because in Genesis chapter uh, two, we see that God brings together 
a man and a woman, and he officiates this union. And so when a minister is standing there in a ceremony even today, the picture is that two people are making a promise not to each other, although it is to each other. The bigger promise is they're making a promise to God. That this, I'm entering into a promise, into a covenant that is a picture of how you love us. And even if she makes me mad, even if she's not worthy of my love, I'm making a covenant to God that I will not leave her. Even if it gets hard to live with her, I'm making a promise that I'm going to love her the way that God loves me. And so even when I'm hard to love, even when I'm rebellious to God, God still loves me. God doesn't leave me. That's the picture of marriage. And so God prizes marriage. In fact, when his laws, marriage is a very, very sacred thing, something that in our context, some of us may not see the value, especially if you've been in a hard marriage. Maybe your marriage didn't end well. But at least you need to understand the, the, the picture that it should have been is what God wanted. That leads us to adultery. See, adultery is when this relationship is stolen. If somebody decides to steal the marriage, the picture, and steals not only that, but steals the virginity and steals everything pure about this relationship, God hates this. God responds to this. So anytime we read the Bible and you come across something that talks about a virgin, talks about marriage, or talks about adultery, you can understand it is a serious subject. And so when we get into the context of this verse, you need to understand, first of all, it is a serious subject because all three of these things are in the context. All right, so let's dive into it just a little bit. Before we get to verse 28, anytime somebody throws out one verse to you that seems to un be unsettling, it's a good idea to read what's going on in the chapter. And, and the more you know, and the more you read and study and learn, the more you're going to understand. So I want to go to the context here. What we have in this chapter is we have various laws, and then it goes into these laws on purity, which seem kind of weird. And then it goes into a laws on the purity of marriage. It starts out by talking about virginity and how it's prized. And then we have four case studies. Case studies meaning examples that are going to be kind of what-ifs to this, to this topic of purity in marriage. And the first one we're going to start in verse 22 is the first case study is pretty clear. If a man is found lying with a wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with a woman and the woman. So you shall purge evil from Israel. Now the purpose of this is very clear. This is adultery. God says, listen, if you steal the purity of marriage, this is going to be severe. Now you may think, well, that's pretty harsh. You know, killing two people because they had an affair. But understand the context is a much more severe uh, picture than what we... And also, there is this way around. I know this is going to be hard for some of us to understand, but there's a way to not get killed for adultery. Don't have adultery, okay? That's the way around this, okay? Don't break, okay? And, and so, if you know you're going to commit it, don't get married, don't... I mean, there's a lot of ways around this, okay? But it's very clear... And the case study here, I want to point out one thing, is that if you are the person in the marriage and you break it, you're guilty of adultery. But if you're single or maybe you're married or whatever, and you enter into the marriage covenant and you're not supposed to be there, you also have committed adultery. Both parties are equal in this, okay? Adultery is not just the, the, the person who's entered into the covenant. It's also the one who says, you know what, I'm going to go somewhere I shouldn't. I'm going to enter into this covenant where I shouldn't be. 
But the whole point of verse 22 is, we've talked about marriage and how we've prized purity of marriage. If you break this, if you steal marriage, it is severe. God cares. Adultery is the, the context. But just like in some of your connect groups, there's always the what if guy, right? There's always the yeah, 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 but, okay? And we'll start throwing out the scenarios, okay? That's fine. That's fine. That's what we have here. But what if she's not married, okay? What if she's just engaged? It says here, if there is a betrothed virgin and she meets her and meets her and he, a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge evil from your midst. Now I want to just point out, this is a what if, what if scenario, but in the what if scenario, Moses, who's writing this, is very clear on the scenario, okay? And there's some details here that are, make sense. If there is a betrothed version, that means that she is engaged, okay? She's engaged, and they meet in the city. It's a very interesting detail he adds here, okay? Then you, they're both guilty, if they were in the city and she was engaged because, and it's going to give you, okay, one man, he violated his neighbor's wife, but she did not cry out. So the, what it's saying here, it's painting a, a clear picture, especially for this, this time frame, that no one would have said what's going on here. It's a clear picture. First thing you need to understand in the city. To us, that seems like a weird detail. Because when we're in the city, it's... We've got these window panes that make our, our houses just soundproof, right? Our houses are far away from one another. We've got cars going up and down. We've got airplanes. We've got radios, TVs, all these things to where the city is not exactly a quiet place. But understand, before the TV, before all of these things, before cars, and you didn't have these window panes, it's not soundproof, and the houses are right next together. If you are talking, your neighbor's hearing you. And so he's trying to make the case very clearly that if someone is engaged to be married and they enter into a consensual relationship, she did not cry out, okay? He's making the case, you can have a hundred what ifs, but in this what if, she did not cry out, she was not being raped, okay? Very clear. Two consensual people, one of them is engaged. How do we view that? God says, listen, even though it wasn't consummated, even though there wasn't the ceremony, they were intending on entering this covenant. The bride price, which was a custom back then, was already paid. It was already agreed by both sides. You're going to treat this as adultery is what God says. God says, if you're engaged, that is not just something that we break off. That's a time frame in which we're getting details together, but you cannot live as if, if you're single and as if this covenant isn't important. So God says the punishment for both of them in a consensual relationship, even if she's not married yet, but she's engaged. The punishment for that is death. It is the same as adultery. That's what I want you to say, is that whether you're married or just engaged, it is adultery if you consensually decide to either enter into somebody's marriage or to exit and cheat on your spouse. That is Okay, so two case studies, very clear, both adultery. Now, some of us then take it to the next step. Well, what if she's not married? So the next two cases are going to be, well, what if she's not married? 
So he's going to be very clear on this. Case study three. But if out in the country, now that's an interesting detail, a man happens to meet a young woman pledged to be married, so she's engaged, and he rapes her. And we have this new word introduced. And he rapes her. Only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the woman. She has committed no sin deserving death. This case is like someone, that of someone who attacks and murders his neighbor. For the man found the young woman in the country, and though the betrothed woman screamed, there was no one to rescue her. So we have a, a clear picture painted. This woman is violated. She is being raped. It's very clear. She was in the country. No one could hear her. She did scream. She did not want this. This was not a part of, what, of her, the story. She was not giving herself to this man. This was something that was being taken from her. And so we have this idea, some of us, that God does not care about women in the Old Testament. In fact, some of the, the surrounding cultures, this would not have been punished by death. But God says, if you have someone made in my image, if you have this prized woman, whether she is married or not. Now, the context here, it says betrothed because that's all we've been talking about so far. But the concept is if somebody steals that virginity, if somebody steals that chastity, that desire to stay pure to God, if somebody steals that, you're going to treat this man as if he murdered her. You are, and it doesn't even say you're going to take him outside, you're going to stone him outside the city. It says, listen, if you find this happening, there is no due process. If, if somebody steals this, if you encounter a rape, this man is guilty and you could put him to death at that moment. Understand, this is a severe, severe consequence that separates from most of the surrounding consequence. And it's God basically saying, listen, we're not going to treat even a woman, a young woman, who in other cultures may not be valued, we're not going to treat them as, as if you can do whatever you want. And if you do this, you will be dealt with and you will be killed. Vengeance, wrath will be put upon you. The wrath of God will find you. And so those three case scenarios are the ones that lead into this fourth one. And even knowing that, some of us are like, it still kind of hurts. It still doesn't make sense. But when knowing... God cares about marriage, so if we commit adultery, whether it's just an engagement or we're actually married, that's serious to God. But if a rape occurs, the woman has done nothing. The woman is innocent. But the man, you're going to kill him. You're going to treat him as a murderer. So when we get to this, maybe just give a little bit of benefit to God. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is pledged to be married and rapes her, and they are discovered, so, oh, oh, he's not pledged, excuse me. So she's not pledged to be married and rapes her. They are discovered. He shall pay the father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her. So this verse still seems to give us a little trouble. Y'all still got a little trouble with this verse, right? But this is where I want you as a person who's studying God, who, who's diving into your relationship with God, who's saying, you know what, I want to know more about the heart of God. When you get to this verse and you've done the context, you can at least say there's, there's got to be more to this because it, this still doesn't seem to sit with what the heart of God 
is everywhere else about? I want to point out something, and I want to quiz you a little bit. How many of you remember the word that was used for rape in the last verse, or the last verse? Anyone remember it? Say it. Chazak. That's right. Okay? It's very clear. And none of us are Hebrew scholars, so, you know, they're close enough. In this verse, something that we miss, and another thing I've done to you. How many of y'all know what I usually preach? What version of the Bible I usually preach out of? The ESV. This is the NIV. The NIV does something very, very deceitful, I think, in here. Very damaging. And that is it it treats two words that should be translated differently. It translates them the same. This word rape is actually tafas in verse 28. Tafas is a word that means to hold. And so, uh, whereas chazak is, to, is violent, it's to seize, uh, to rape is a good translation, to arrest, to, to hold violently. The word tafas is intentionally changed by the Hebrew author Moses. He intentionally says, but in a different scenario... If we meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married, she's not engaged, she's not married, and somebody lay hold of her. There's no violence in this word. In fact, and there's even an instance of, of tafas being translated play in the Old Testament. If I were to tell you, I held my wife, does a violent image come? If you know them. In fact, I could have been holding her gently to kiss her. I could have been holding her hand. There's a psalm that uses this word to hold a lizard. I'm just grasping a lizard. I'm just holding something. There's no violent inherent in this. And there's no intent of violence in this. And it points out a couple of things about this. That there's no scenarios here of rape. Or, because it's not talking about rape. That's why it didn't go into the country. We didn't go into the city. It's taking us to a different place. We've talked about adultery. What if, uh, what if it's adultery, um, if they're engaged or they're already married? Well, that's, that's adultery. Well, what if she's, what if she's not you know, a, a co-conspirator? What if she's raped? Well, if she's raped, she's innocent. So this is talking about scenario four. What if she's not married and the guy's not married? What if neither of them are married? What if this is premarital sex? And the entire context has changed when we're doing this, Okay. And, uh, and I can show you even more about this. I, I want to um, challenge Kevin to put up on the screen Exodus chapter uh, 22 real quick. This is the exact... Yeah, Kevin, great job. This first day back there. Did good. Uh, in this, this is the same law. It's the exact same law, but it's stated a little different. Look how it's stated here. Same author, same law. If a man seduces a virgin not betrothed and lies with her, and give, he shall give her the bride price and make her his wife. Okay, you can go back to 28. Seduces is the word he used the first time, but he, he calls back this law, and he happens, he says, and if, he, if they lay down together. So this, this law, the context of this law, is what happens if you have two people that are not married, which, by the way, the context of two people not married in this are young people. Because marriage was a custom that was, was given by the, the families. And so if you were not married, the chances are you were very young. So these are probably two teenagers. Boys kind of cute. Girls kind of pretty. And he winks at her and she's got butterflies in her. 
and one thing leads to another and they find themselves sneaking off and they take things too far. That's the intent of what is going on here. And it's stated twice, okay? But when we lose the context and we have one translation, that's the reason why the way we don't use the NIV here, not, not saying you can't use it. It's the same reason I don't go to the message first, the message version of the Bible. The, the two versions that I like to read first, the ESV, and then if I find something troubling, I go to the King James because those are more word for word. And if you, uh, if you ever come across a word that seems out of place, go to the King James and look and see what the King James translates it. Because it kind of opens up. I want to, real quick, I'll, I'll show you. This is how the NIV does it. Chazak, rapes, and tafas, rapes. But if you go to the King James, it says the man force. That's how it translates chazak. And it translates uh, um, tafas as lay hold. So it changes it different. Now it's still, you know, it's, it may be hard to understand if you don't have the full context, if you don't read Exodus as well and know that this is referring back to a law that's already been stated. Then you can at least begin to see, man, this is really God talking about something entirely different. Case study number four is another what if. And so let's talk about this scenario. And this scenario is kind of shocking to me. To us, because we have this mindset about how much God uh, can't stand sexual, uh, how he has no grace when it comes to sexual impropriety, when we make a mistake sexually. This is what I want to point out when we go back. I'm going to go back to uh, this verse. What's interesting about this is nobody dies in this, okay? Two kids are caught having premarital sex. No one dies, okay? So first of all, if your reaction as a parent and this happens, don't kill your kids, okay? First, okay, as parents, okay? And it's interesting, it says, for he has violated. It points to the guy, it points to the young man, and it says, first of all, we're going to put this on him, and basically what it's saying in church language is this man has not been thinking with his brain, he has been thinking with other parts of his body. He has been thinking short-term, not long-term. And God says this has consequences. And understand the consequences for this young lady are different than the consequences for this man. This man, if this happens and they just go their separate ways, they can deny it and the, and the boy will be, he can, he, can, he can deny, 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 and he can get away with it. But the girl is going to come to a day where her, she's going to be pledged to be married. And she's going to have to make a choice. Either she's going to confess to her father that she is not a virgin. Or she's going to try to deceive her father and her future husband. And if she does this and is found out, and she probably will be found out. You can read the first parts of the Bible. I mean, the first parts of this chapter if you want to know the details. But she's probably going to be found out if she tries to go through a deceit. She could be executed if she tries to be deceitful. So most likely what's going to happen is she's going to say, you know what? I'm not going to be married. And her dad's going to pledge her to be married. And she's going to have to go to her dad and say, unfortunately, I cannot be married because I made an indiscretion. And so she's either going to have to go out on her own. And at this time, it's very hard for a woman to go out and make it on her own. So she's probably either going to end up begging or she's going to end up being a prostitute or, or earning a living in, in a, a way that would not desire, God would not desire for her. And so you have this situation where even though it was consensual, and even though it seemed to be no one got hurt, this woman, this young woman, her, her life is forever changed, and this boy, 
has just basically used and, and, and discarded. He, he, he used her, he discarded her, and God comes back and says, listen, we're not going to use a young woman like this. You can't, even though it may be short term to you, I'm not going to let you discard someone made in my image. I'm not going to let you discard and change her life. And so God says, listen, here's what's going to happen. You're going to pay what you took. You're going to pay the bride price. You're not going to get out of the, the covenant, the, the relationship that you consummated. So you're going to go through that custom. But then he also says, you can never divorce her. In other words, you can't play the long con. You can't say, well, I'll just stay with her for a few years. I'll divorce her and I'll, get out, get out. I'll, I'll figure out a way out of this. God says, for the rest of your life, you're going to take care of this woman. You're going to protect her. You're going to provide for her. You're going to love this woman. You understand that, that virginity and marriage is a big deal in the Old Testament. Wars are fought over men protecting their sisters and their daughters. And so God is saying, you're going to take, you can't discard her. You're going to fight for her. All right, let's go back to Exodus real quick. Exodus gives us another detail that also will be helpful for you looking at the context. In Exodus, it says, you're going to have to pay if you've, it says, if the father utterly refuses to give him to her, he shall pay the money equal to the bride price for virgins. It says basically this, if the father looks at this guy and says, he's no good for her, she doesn't have to marry him. If, if this is a, a guy that you wouldn't want and she's like, dad, I can't live the rest of my life, the father can say, I can take care of you better than he can. And the father can actually say, I'm, I'm going to keep the, the bride price and, I, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll give you uh, something, in, but you cannot have my daughter. And he can actually keep and protect his daughter if that's what needs to happen. I go through all of this to show you that the, the point of this verse is the exact opposite of what most people would accuse this verse of. It takes a little bit of diving in, but even more than what it takes of diving in, it takes a heart. That Man, I know the heart of God. I've seen the heart of God. God is for the down and out. I've never found a story in the Bible when you dive in that God isn't for the down and out. And when God sees a young woman being raped, he doesn't say, well, you know, in, in most cultures, she's just property. God says, in our culture, that man has murdered her character. He is to be dealt with, and you don't do a thing to her. She has done nothing wrong. And if you're a, a young boy, and there seems to be something, no harm, no foul, understand, you cannot just discard a young girl who may have thought she was in love. She may have thought she was, was, was doing what she needed to do to keep this boy. You cannot just discard her. You will take her and you will protect her and you will reflect my character and my heart for the rest of your life to this girl. When we see the heart of God in a verse like this, it's powerful, but some of us never get there because we have, have one podcast say something crazy or one TV statement, just say something. And we find out if we would have just trusted God and dove in a little bit and not said, that's why I don't read the Old Testament. That's why I don't dive in. We would have found the heart of God. God loves women. God loves young women. God loves the down and out. God loves the abused. He protects the hurt. When Jesus, as we approach Easter, when Jesus is telling his disciples that 
he's going to give his life on their behalf. And he's very clear in the book of John. He begins to go into these discussions and he says, this is what's going to happen. The son of man, he's referring to himself, is going to be taken from you. But he makes a promise to them. He says, in John 14, 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will return to you. He makes this promise that you may feel like God has abandoned you, but God has never abandoned you. And how will return to you. And in fact, he does return to them. He dies on a cross and he's resurrected three days later. When we celebrate Easter, it's the return of, of Jesus. Jesus comes back. And then he ascends into heaven and he made this promise right after he says this. He says, and if I leave, I will send a helper. And so he returns again and the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts. And even though Jesus is, is not physically present, he's spiritually with us now and we have the heart of God with us. And then he makes another promise that, that there's going to be a day in which I return physically and I wipe every tear away. And those of you that are hurting and feel as if God has abandoned you and feel as if you have been abused... God is going to wipe away every tear and make everything right. These promises are of a return, of a return to people who are hopeless or helpless. Because the God, heart of God is that he cares for us when we are hurting. He cares for us when we are vulnerable. And we see it throughout the entire Old Testament. Throughout the entire New Testament. Every word that God gives us. So here's all I want for you this week. For some of us who dive in, maybe you hit something or hear something that doesn't sit well, I want to encourage you to keep reading and keep going. But maybe you've said, you know what, I don't read my Bible. I don't seek God every day. Ah, Sunday's enough for me. I want you to understand that you're missing the heart of God. And you're going to encounter verses, you're going to encounter situations where you're like, why would God let that happen? Why would and you're not going to be able to. Because you're not going to be able to rationalize. You're not going to be able to understand because you're not seeking the heart of God. You're not finding the heart of God. You're simply looking and listening to people talking about this God, great God. My heart is that in this church, we dive in and we see how much God loves us. I want to close by just giving you a verse. Maybe you memorized this verse this week. Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. I want to read it once and then I want to have us read it together. That always seems to go well when you try to keep up with me reading. But before I do that, I want to tell you a story that kind of, I think, sums this up. Y'all know I'm a wordsmith, right? I'm really good with words. We're all clear? Amen? Okay, that's not convincing. My wife uh, was getting ready to go on a date with me this past week. It was pretty sweet, and she's in the next room. And I'm... Um, uh, we're talking, and then she, she says something. She's looking in the mirror, I'm guessing, and she says, I wish I were skinny. Now, I reply to her with a statement that has two meanings, one of which is what I meant, and one of which is what you're going to hear. And there's this moment where she has to choose. She says, I wish I were skinny. And my response was, in all love, I don't want you to be skinny. Now, some of you gasp. Some of you are like, oh my gosh. But my wife's response to this was, that's because you always think I'm beautiful. And when she said that, it made me, first of all, sigh of relief, right? Okay, because I realized what I'd said. But she knew that I wasn't saying that she's not skinny. She knew that 
Every time she talks to me or complains about the way she looks, I always think she's beautiful just the way she is. And so when she says she wants to be skinny, I have in my mind a bean pole. I think sports cars need curves, right, man? Yeah. Anyway, I think she's perfect just the way she is. And so when I reply, I don't want you skinny, it's me. I want you like you are. And she responded by knowing my heart and her mind never went there. This week, know that God loves you. Know that it's throughout. And if you're tempted to wonder, does God care for me right now? Where I'm at? And this is what I'm going through. God cares. Let's say this together. I'll say it first and you say it. And those who know your name and put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Let's say this together. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray with all of my heart that everyone in this room will know your heart. We've all had discussions where we're tempted to think maybe God isn't for the down and out. Maybe God back in the day didn't love women. Maybe he didn't care for victims back in the day. Lord, I pray that we'll be people who seek you so much every single day through reading your word, through praying, through just looking at how can we know you more. We'll be people who anytime we encounter something that doesn't seem to make sense, that doesn't seem to fit with who we know you to be, we'll begin to dive in and ask questions. And whether it's our own study or asking a pastor or just asking a friend, we'll begin to to try to, to figure out, what is this teaching me about the heart of God? Because we know eventually, Lord, we'll see your heart. And your heart is always for the down and out. It's always for those who are trying to to find you. And you want to reveal yourself clearly. Lord, strengthen our faith, faith this week. Lord, strengthen our hearts. Let us seek you. Lord, we pray that as we seek you, you will change our hearts to be like your heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.